0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Matthew Waipoy, senior economist in the poverty practice at the World Bank in Jakarta and lead author of a recent World Bank report on inequality, Indonesia's rising divide. Observing that the past decade of rapid economic growth has primarily benefited Indonesia's richest 20%, the report outlines record levels of inequality, with Indonesia's Gini coefficient having risen to 41, and that richest fifth of Indonesians enjoying 49% of household consumption. Matthew, thanks for joining us today to discuss your report. Hi Dave, good afternoon. Uh, Now, your report gives those sort of eye-catching figures that I've mentioned there at the outset, Know, the richest fifth uh, enjoying forty nine percent of consumption, so on and so forth. But if we sit down and look at Indonesian society in straightforward terms, do we, I mean, do we see a clear division into different wealth groups within society? And what would those look like?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a good question because a lot of people don't realise how poor a lot of the Indonesian population is, uh, and how unequal it's becoming at the top. So you can think of Indonesia as, on an economic terms, as being split into three different Groups or classes, if you like. So there's the poor and the vulnerable, which is about the poorest forty percent uh, of the country. So the the national poverty rate is about ten or eleven percent, uh, and that's a very a pretty low poverty line, around about a dollar twenty five per person per day. Uh, but there's another thirty percent who live just above the poverty line, no more than fifty percent above that, so on less than two dollars a day. And they regularly, uh, they're vulnerable to shocks and income or in health or so forth that can drop, drag them down into poverty. And so you actually see a high degree of vulnerability where of the poor this year, over half of them were not poor the year before. So there's really this bigger group, this 40% of poor and vulnerable who sort of spend their time churning in and out of poverty and sitting just above. And this group's gotten has declined in numbers over time only a little bit in the last 10 to 15 years. At the other end of the distribution, you've got the richest 20%. Yep. And you can think of this in some ways as Indonesia's sort of middle class. But by middle class, it's not middle class in the sense in which we think of it in developed countries. Mm-hmm. You know, their entry point into this middle class is about $5 per person per day of consumption. Um, but they're economically secure. Uh, what we mean is they've got low probability of falling into poverty or vulnerability in the future. So they're having now... Um, on average, they'll have a high school education or some will have a tertiary education. They're no longer working in agriculture. They'll have formal salary jobs or be running their own businesses. And, you know, they've got disposable income in the beginning to aspire to household amenities and assets. And so these are the, this is the fastest growing segment of the population. They're growing at 11% per year. Mm. Um, and so since about 2002, they've gone from 7% to about 20% of the population. Uh, and they're the ones who have been really been benefiting from the economic growth in the last 10 to 15 years. And then you've got sort of this middle 40%. So mm. they're not poor and vulnerable. They're, they're, they're above that line, uh, but they're not yet economically secure. There's still a chance that they'll be poor or vulnerable the next year. And so they might have something like a, a junior high education, and, and they're moving out of agriculture, but not yet completely, uh, and they're between about 2 and $4 a day, so they're starting to have some disposable income, um, but but not yet a, a high degree of income. And so you can sort of think of Indonesia as divided in some ways into these, these three big groups, sort of the bottom 40% who are sort of poor or near poor. Um, the top 20% of the uh, emerging middle class who are economically secure, and then sort of a middle 40% who are not poor or vulnerable but not yet secure.
0: Okay, so when you're talking about these rising inequality figures, can we think of it in terms of that emerging middle class getting larger and getting uh, wealthier more quickly than the rest of the population, or is it, uh, I guess, an ultra-rich segment uh, who are controlling uh, an increasing share of the wealth? What, what would be the rough dynamic? When you think of inequality increasing, it can come because the poor
1: are being left behind by mm. the middle and the top, or the top are pulling away from everyone else. Sure. And, and what you see in Indonesia is very much the latter case, that mm. the, the top is pulling away from everyone else. So if you look at the growth in income and consumption uh, over the 2000s, uh, the the growth um, consumption for the bottom forty percent increased by about one percent per year yep. if, if we adjust for inflation it's almost nothing at all mm. um, and the middle forty percent you know maybe between one and two or three percent per year so again not very much mm. it's only the richest twenty percent where you're sort of seeing you know six seven eight percent per annum increases in, in consumption. But you make a good point which is the top 20 is not homogenous in itself. Okay. 80% of that top 20 is probably between about 5 and $10 per person per day of consumption. Okay. Uh, and it's... Uh, it, the, the, the growth rates are, are highest again for those who you might think of being as the upper class in a sense. But it's really difficult for us to talk about them because the survey data often don't capture them. They're, they're, they don't answer the door when the statistics agency comes okay. and knocks or they, they under-report, you know quite how much income and consumption they have. So we don't know too much about that high end. But it, But it is the case that the top 20% are pulling away and within the top 20%, that the top 1% or 2 or 3% are doing even better
0: again. Okay, and what's driving this rising inequality, having that top segment of society pulling away from the rest? You know, what we look at in the report is we identify
1: identify four main reasons for inequality increasing. And so you could say in some ways it's because there are some advantages that mean the top are pulling away. And for some reasons, uh, some cases, there are reasons why, uh, you know, the bottom 80%, if you like, can't catch up. Yeah. So there's a little bit of both. Now why can't uh, the, the bottom 40 to 80% catch up? F- the first main reason is inequality of opportunity. So by this we mean you know, what sort of a start in life do, do children get. So some children are getting good access to health, they're getting a healthy start, they're getting a good education, they're developing good skills, so when they come out to the workforce they can get a good job and earn a good yeah. wage where some kids are not getting these same opportunities. And so that means when they come out, they're unskilled workers. The only jobs they can find are sort of, you know, in the informal sector and, you know, low, low wage jobs. Uh, and so they can't get these higher incomes. And so from birth, they, they're getting penalized in terms of their ability to, to earn a good income when, when they grow up. The, the second thing that you see, uh, if we're thinking about why can't they catch up, is there's unequal protection um, from shocks. So shocks affect all households, whether these are health shocks or income shocks or price shocks. But different houses can cope with the shocks and better or, or worse. And so wealthier households, so civil servants and uh, you know wealthier households who are working in the private sector, they've got access to health insurance and to unemployment insurance and they've got pensions and they've got savings. So if something happens, they can, they can use some of those savings to weather these shocks. But most Indonesians don't have access to these sort of formal Insurance and and risk protection uh, mechanisms. And so they rely on informal coping mechanisms. So this is borrowing from friends and family mostly. But a lot of the time, borrowing from friends and family is not enough to cope Mm. with these types of shocks, particularly if these are shocks that are affecting the whole community, like a drought or a natural disaster. And so when you can't borrow enough to cope with it, you start resorting to you know, adverse coping mechanisms like pulling your kids out of school so you can save on the expenses and so the child can work and bring in an income. Or it means selling, you know, a productive asset like livestock or a sewing machine so that you can pay, say, some health expenses, but this means sacrificing income in the future. Then you've got two other drivers which mean that it's it's that the, the richest 20% are pulling away. Sure. And, and the first one of those is a widening wage gap between skilled wages and unskilled wages yeah. and so in a, in a modern global economy there's an increasing demand for skill mm. uh, from workers uh, and yet if you ask Indonesian employers about 50% of them say they have difficulty finding the right skills for their workers so there's this increasing demand that they aren't finding enough of the workers so if they do find someone you know they have to offer them a good wage to attract them so you've got this increasing skilled wages over time at the same time, most of the jobs that are being created, are low productivity, informal uh, types of sectors like agriculture, yep. you know, wholesale and retail services, some of the community sectors. And so you've got a lot of unskilled workers coming out and the only jobs that they're finding are these low wage jobs. So you get this increasing income inequality where you know, 20 or 30% of, of the workers are doing well with skilled wages and, and the, the, the big majority are not. Um, and then the, the fourth reason why the top is pulling away uh, is because of increasing concentration of wealth. So, you know, you, you introduced by saying, you know, f- the top 20% of, of Indonesian households enjoy 49% of all consumption. Yeah. And that's true. But if you look at the ownership of wealth, of property and financial a- assets, it's even more concentrated. So, uh, you know, according to, to some estimates, the top 10% of Indonesian households have 77% of all. Well, oh, okay. and the top one percent alone has fifty yeah. percent, and and this and so this is one of the highest um, in the world for which we have data in, in Indonesia. Mm. That's one of the highest levels, and the rate of increase in the last ten or fifteen years has been one of the highest as well. So it's high and going up. Yeah. And the reason why you worry about this is because it leads to higher inequality today, mm. uh, in the sense that you know if a small number of people have all the financial assets. They're the ones who are earning the the. Rents and the dividends and the interest, and in and, and a place like Indonesia, where the housing market is booming and the stock market, until recently, has been doing very well, then you've got these high returns to capital that are just being enjoyed by a small number at the top. But you also worry about it because it reinforces inequality tomorrow. So the children of the small number of of, of wealthy Indonesian households get a better health and education today. So they'll have Mm. more skilled, higher incomes tomorrow. But they'll also inherit this financial wealth, which means they'll have higher capital-based income as well as higher labor income. So you've got those sort of two reasons, this increasing wage gap between skilled and unskilled workers and this increasing wealth concentration that means the top's pulling away at the same time as the the bottom and the middle are struggling to to climb up
0: sure sure and i mean surely for any politician when you're talking about 80 percent of society essentially being left behind that you know that's a very large slab of voters to appeal to and i recall in the 2014 presidential election you know uh, Prabowo the losing candidate and Jokowi who's now become president had very different pitches overall, but both were really promising to improve the standard of living of ordinary Indonesians. Um, can you run us through some of the things that the Jokowi government has been doing to, to address inequality, and do they differ to what we saw during the Yudhoyono period?
1: As you said, it was a, it was a, a bit hot topic in the lead-up to the 2014 presidential elections, and I think it's very fair to say that Inequality is a major concern of of the current administration at the highest levels, you know, amongst mm. Jokowi, the president amongst use of colour, the vice president and amongst a number of the, the cabinet. I I think they know it's an issue, mm. they're not quite sure what to do about it, not mm. quite sure how to tackle and address it, and they're still thinking it through. And, and and one of the main objectives of the report was to, you know, say why is it going up and, and what what are the most important things to do to do to tackle it. So, you know, I, I think there's still working out what is their inequality strategy. Um, but you can see that there are some things uh, that are being done that are that are different than say what was happening under the, the SBY administration. Uh, the, the first would be I think fuel subsidies. Mm. And so if if you think about um, fuel subsidy reform, that happened uh, you know three times under under the SBY's two two terms, but he sort of reduced fuel subsidies only when it was starting to become the fiscal pressures, the deficit was becoming so high that uh, he didn't have a choice. He was legally bound to, yeah. to reduce it so that you know the debt didn't get too high. And in some cases, you know, reversed the reforms once the oil pr- international oil prices came back down. Um, you know, when when Joko We came in, he faced the same fiscal pressures in late two thousand and fourteen, and also did sort of a, a small one off increase in in prices so that the deficit didn't get too large. But then in 2015 he removed basically all of them. You know, all all petrol subsidies were removed and nearly all diesel subsidies were removed. So this was going farther than he really needed to do, um, just from a fiscal deficit perspective. But you know what he was thinking was um, I have spending priorities for, for my term, you mm-hmm. know, infrastructure, health and so forth. And you know, fuel subsidies were taking up twenty-five percent of government spending. It was bigger than education, which by law is twenty percent, and way bigger than what was being spent on health and on social assistance. And so, um, you know, he pushed through what was a relatively unpopular reform, mm. which was, and he pushed it through further than he than he really needed to, just from a fiscal perspective. But he used it because he wanted to invest more in infrastructure, more in health, and more in social assistance and, and those things already are going to help on the inequality side. Um, infrastructure, um, better infrastructure is going to mean lower prices for goods and services. and this is particularly good for the poor because two-thirds of their consumption goes on food and now it's cheaper to mo- now you know it will become cheaper to move food uh, around the country. Um, but infrastructure is also going to increase the productivity of workers by connecting people to markets and and making the overall co- costs of goods lower uh, and therefore making exports more competitive and so this should lead to you know more more jobs and better jobs higher productivity jobs with higher wages so the infrastructure should in the the medium to longer term be good for in- for reducing inequality you know the investment in health spending is is needed and sort of most importantly the, the, he's been increasing uh, the budget for social assistance for direct, you know, cash transfers targeted to the poor and the vulnerable. And for one of the key programs, that budget has doubled in 2016 over 2015. and Mm. He's been able to afford to do this Mm. uh, by redirecting some of the savings from from the fiscal subsidies. So, you know, they're they're taking some actions that are are definitely positive and, and creating the fiscal space to be able to, invest in the policy areas that will reduce inequality both today and tomorrow is, is really important but I, I think there's still I, I wouldn't say there's a clear inequality strategy yet okay. a coordinated set of policies thought through as into what are the most important areas and what's it going to cost and, uh, and so forth.
0: Uh, you highlight fiscal policy in your report as one of the key areas for reform. Uh, what do you think the government should do?
1: You know when you, you look at the the things that we're, we're sort of saying are the key messages, which mm. is you know improve the access and quality of health and education. improve the skills of today's workforce. Mm. so they, they, so you've got more skilled labor, but also tomorrow's workforce, create better jobs for, for better wages uh, and, and improve coverage of you know, social protection and so forth. A lot of these things are things that are going to take time. Mm. Uh, These are investments in the future, you might not see them for five years, you may not see them for ten years, you may not see them for fifteen years. You have to do them. Mm. In the long run you can't address inequality without them. But in terms of things that you can really do that will affect inequality now, fiscal policy is perhaps your most important instrument. Mm -hmm. And so by fiscal policy we mean it's both the taxes that are raised, and I gave the example of. Personal income tax, corporate mm. income tax, value-added taxes, raising revenues in different ways. And it's the spending, what you yes. spend on and how you spend on it. So if we look at other countries and we look at how much inequality is reduced when you consider how unequal market incomes are, mm. i.e. if you just look at house, uh, household income from salaries and from rents and interest and, and dividends, if you look at the degree of inequality just from uh, the market... And then you look at the degree of inequality after all of the government actions in terms of both taxes, but also transfers and spending, Mm. uh, including in-kind spending like uh, health and education. In some countries, the, the Gini coefficient is reduced by five, eight, ten. 12 points which is a very very big decrease yeah. and in indonesia it's reduced at the moment only by two and a half points well you know this was this was 2012 2013 this is this sort of under the previous administration and we're updating this analysis to understand under the new administration what this will look like but what it meant was the government wasn't doing much with its pack its framework for taxes and spending to sort of Really Directly free. try and reduce inequality. Yeah. And this is where the opportunity for the current administration mm. is. And it's already take The most important side is going to be on the spending side. That's right. where your biggest lever mm. is. And getting rid of fuel subsidies, which are just you know mostly enjoyed by richer households with cars, mm. and using that money on infrastructure and health and education and social assistance is a good start. But you need to also be spending on the right areas and in the right ways. So the, the social assistance spending is still... Even though it's increased in the 2016 budget, it's still much lower than other countries in the East Asia region and and quite a bit lower than developing countries around the world. So quite a bit more can be spent. And and social assistance is the most cost-effective way of reducing poverty today. You know, targeted cash transfers to the poor and vulnerable, you know, are, are going to be dollar for dollar, the Mm -hmm. best way of of reducing inequality today.
0: Uh, I mean, Jokowi's political platform, as far as I see it, uh, has a lot to do about direct spending. Uh, And personally identifying himself with programs like his Healthy Indonesia Card, uh, which builds on the sort of universal health insurance program sort of set up under the previous government, uh, the Smart Indonesia Card. Why doesn't that policy focus, and such a central part of his platform, his pitch to the voters, result in higher social spending, why is it still at levels sort of comparatively low within the region? I, th- I think East Asia as a region has,
1: and of course the, it's a very, very diverse region, but generally there's been a lack of support for spending on social assistance and social insurance, for social Mm. protection generally, compared to, say, a region like Latin America, Mm. where you'll see probably some of the highest levels Mm. of spending on on social protection. I think there's been much more of an emphasis or an ethos of help yourself Mm. out out of poverty, being one, Mm. but also sort of an aversion to dependency, this, uh, this idea, you know, give a man a fish, yeah. you know, feed him for today, teach him to fish, um, or, or as it is in Indonesia, give a man a rod. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I think there's sort of generally, both in Indonesia and, and in the region, more g- generally been sort of the suspicion about social assistance that it creates dependency and it's not the right way to, to, to raise the, the, the poor out. Um, Now, I think that's changing. I think it's starting to be seen seen more as this is helping the poor to help themselves, Hmm. right? And, you know, we do look at the expansion of social assistance, which did start under... I mean, it came in first in response to the Asian financial crisis. That was the first social protection you saw in Indonesia at all. Uh, But there was a relatively small level, and it was only under SBY, in fact when he did the first um, fuel subsidy reform in 2005, yeah. that he, he compensated the poor. He said, well, I'm only gonna raise fuel prices if we're also doing something to compensate the poor, that he really scaled up social protection and you started to see health insurance for the poor, subsidized rice for the poor expanded, um, subsidized um, scholarships for the poor expanded, but also direct cash transfers on a temporary basis to the poor were first mm-hmm. introduced. And you know, research on that has started to show that actually, at least at the level, the transfer, the benefit levels, it isn't creating dependency amongst the poor. In fact, under the bail-tay, the temporary cash transfer during the SBY periods, which happened when fuel prices went up, employment rates amongst poor households actually increased slightly. And We're not quite sure why. Maybe this is because they could afford to travel to the next town to get the job or they could afford to buy someone to look up, you know, pay for someone to look after the kids while they went and worked and so forth. So, so you're not seeing dependency levels because the the benefit levels of the social assistance in Indonesia are not so overwhelming that people say, Great, I don't need to work, you know, they have been fifteen or maybe twenty percent of the poverty line, so it's nowhere near enough to stop working. So I think there has been a reluctance to give cash to the poor for those reasons. And over time that this is this is starting to starting to change. And and and, and the resistance I think has been to these direct cash transfers. It's not mm-hmm. a resistance to an idea like a scholarship okay. or a health card.
0: Now, before I sidetracked you there, you were getting uh, moving on from saying there needs to be more social spending to going back to the revenue side. To sort. the tax side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what would you recommend on that front?
1: This, this is a trickier area. You know, right. the, 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 the tax um, revenue as a percent of GDP in Indonesia is quite a bit lower than the rest of the region, than in Malaysia or the Philippines or in Thailand. Um, for example and so you know they know they need to increase their tax revenues if they want to increase their spending on infrastructure and health and on social assistance for example the questions are what can you do and what can you do when so something like collecting indirect taxes collecting value-added taxes or sales taxes that's easier easier to do because, you know, retailers or at least formal retailers report the revenue and then just collect the tax on from the customer and pass it on to the to the company. But something like personal income tax or corporate income tax, which are going to have a, a more progressive impact directly uh, on inequality because they'll be paid mostly by the rich as well as ways raising revenue on the spending side, they actually take tax capacity and they're harder to do. Mm-hmm. So... You know, when you look at corporate income tax and personal income tax in Indonesia, um, there are quite high rates of non-compliance. Basically, because there's not much monitoring or enforcement or auditing, Hmm. you know, households and companies, um, a lot of them are happy not to report any income and just not to pay tax or to under-report their incomes and, and to pay Uh, low levels of tax. So you can do a lot on this side to address inequality directly without even changing any of the tax rates, just through uh, um, improving compliance. Good examples of this are where you do see compliance with personal income tax, it's on labour income, for people for such as civil servants or salaried workers for large firms because their taxes withheld yep. by the employer. Mm-hmm. And so you can enforce that. These people uh, are being, uh, their, their taxes are being withheld by the company and given directly to the government. So that enforcement mechanism is there. But you don't see that enforcement with taxes are not withheld. So, for example, uh, if some of the professional um, sectors where you act as partnerships and things like that there's not a withholding you pay yourself out of the profits and so there's not necessarily this withholding it means it's easier not to comply Um, and in the informal sector of course there's there's no no compliance necessarily at all but also when you think about personal income tax that comes from capital sources so this is rents from property, this is dividends from shares, this is interest from bank accounts and and capital gains from investments. That in theory is all taxed, but that's not withheld uh, largely as well. Mm -hmm. And so the compliance um, on the non-labour side is very low. So now what that means is of personal income tax, 95% comes from labour income Mm. and only 5% comes from capital Mm -hmm. income. And yet, I've been saying, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got this increasing wealth concentration, the share of income that goes to capital, not labour, is increasing not only around the world but in Indonesia as well. But at the same time, a lot of those gains aren't being captured through just fair rates of tax compliance. So, to the extent you can increase tax compliance amongst, you know, wealthier households and, and companies, You'll raise more revenue, but you'll also address inequality directly. But this means improving your tax capacity to to do this, and this ta- this takes time.
0: Could I draw you just to the question of, I guess, targets or endpoints. Uh, you, you mentioned a lot of these policies work in the long term. Uh, social spending, perhaps, has the quickest impact. If you know, for a Jacobi government sitting there with what three and a half years left in its term. Uh, t- is it a case of can they set targets now and what, what should those targets be? Well, they have set targets. Okay. Well, there
1: <laughs> there's a target in the medium-term development plan, the ArpeGM, mm. Um and, and that set a target of, of reducing the Gini from 41, which it was, I think, in 2014, to um, 36 or maybe 37 by 2019. Now, that's a very ambitious target. Mm. Th- that would be sort of a, a, a rapid decline historically for any country in the world but in a country where inequality has been going the other way that means sort of turning the trend and then getting it to come downward so 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 there are targets uh i am not sure how easy it is to ultimately to meet that target that, that that's ambitious but you know even stopping the increase uh and reducing inequality you know, in, in genie terms by by a point or two would be a major accomplishment Hmm. Uh, significant accomplishments. So I think they, they need to be doing, So they, they want to be thinking about two goals. One is putting in turn the investments, the long-term investments that are going to really reduce inequality, inequality of opportunity and inequality of outcome in 10 and 15 and 20 years time, for which they're not hmm. going to get the credit. Hmm. Uh, but making those investments anyway while at the same time doing some of these shorter term measures which can be used to address poverty and inequality in the next year or two or three years. Um, and, then, and then they'll get some of the credit for that. So, you know, what, what would what would be fantastic? Um, what would we look back in three or four years and say, look what they did and go, mm-hmm. that's given what's realistic in this time mm-hmm. period, what could have been done? They can certainly do a lot on the poverty side it's easier to reduce the national poverty rate because there is a, a lot of the poor sit just below the line mm. and so to the extent if they significantly expand the coverage of their social assistance so the, the you know the key cash transfer program at the moment covers maybe 5% of the population and they're talking about you know doubling that to sort of you know maybe 9 or so percent this year. But that's still a lot lower than the equivalent programs in Brazil, Mexico, which cover 25-30% of the poor and vulnerable, of the population. So, you know, these are poor and vulnerable households. And a country like Brazil has managed to bring down its inequality significantly, in part through big investments in education, but in part through um, uh, these cash transfer programs to the poor and vulnerable. So, you know, expanding the number of poor and vulnerable that get that Will pull a large amount of people who sit, sit just below the line, above the line, mm. and it'll stop the ones who sit just above the line, a lot of them, from dropping below the line when they have a shock. So you could get, you know, poverty tomorrow, which is at eleven, you know, you could drop that three or four points mm. um, by by 2019 or even earlier with significant expansion in terms of the inequality. Inequality. there's a lot more factors and it's the whole distribution Mm -hmm. and if the top keeps pulling away Mm -hmm. you know pulling up the bottom might just keep you standing still but I I do think you know these significant expansions in in social assistance could be be used it could be fiscally sustainable you Mm -hmm. you don't want it to be fiscally unsustainable and some of the Mm -hmm. what was going on in Brazil was sort of becoming difficult to pay for but you could increase the coverage and the benefit levels in a way that you could keep affording to pay for them um, but you could reduce the genie by one or two points no. i think so would they hit their target of 2019 it's pretty ambitious but would they get sort of a significant way towards that
0: yeah now there's a lot more i could ask you but we're well and truly out of time <laughs> so uh, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today it's been great thank you that was dr matthew waipoi senior economist in the poverty practice at the World Bank in Jakarta and lead author of Indonesia's Rising Divide. Tune in for the next Talking Indonesia podcast with my colleague Ken Satyawan on 24 March and don't forget you can listen to the entire Talking Indonesia archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.